There are numerous benefits for healthcare organizations, physicians, and patients by incorporating advanced practice providers, but such incorporation has some compliance risks. Listen to this episode and I will explain those risks and also some possible safeguards. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I am going to be talking about advanced practice providers. And it has amazed me over the past couple of months how many questions that I have received regarding APPs. Now, some people call the, these individuals and they're licensed uh, professionals. Uh, either non-physician providers, physician extenders, allied health professionals, or advanced practice providers. And and during this episode, and what I typically do in my practice, I refer to them as advanced practice providers, otherwise known as APPs. And so that's what I'm going to be referring to during this episode. And these can either be physician assistants, nurse practitioners, CRNAs, or certified nurse midwives. So it's not just NPs or PAs that are APPs, but it's also the these other like CRNAs and certified nurse midwives. I believe the goal of most organizations when they are going to be incorporating APPs into their practice, it's for the quadruple aim as they call it in the industry. And that is to increase quality, decrease costs, improve patient population health, and to provide a better work-life balance, not only for the physicians, but also for the APPs. And I recently attended a conference, and there was a lot of discussion also dealing with healthcare equity. And I believe by incorporating APPs and the further expansion of medical services, then there can be greater healthcare equity. And what I mean by healthcare equity is providing medical services in underserved areas. Now, this could be uh, through the establishment of a facility, a physician practice. It could even be transportation. Uh, But if if there is a pocket of underserved uh, individuals, uh, whether it's because of financial or or otherwise, uh, then it's up to primarily tax-exempt organizations, but also for-profits, to provide necessary medical services. And I think through the expansion of the use of APPs, then greater healthcare equity can be provided uh, to those underserved areas. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each of those components. So the first one is to manage the quality. 
And there's kind of mixed surveys with respect to quality of care, you know, APPs versus physicians. And I believe, number one, it depends on the individual, but also, secondly, the type of service. Uh, like if I go to an urgent care center and I have the cold and I'm trying to get some medication for my cold, well, I think an APP would be just as good and as efficient as a physician themselves. Um, but, you know, there are other, you know, tech, highly technical uh, issues like for oncology and reading of those test results. Now, APPs can actually assist in the specialty of oncology, but there are certain uh, issues uh, that medical conditions in oncology that a physician probably would be preferable to an APP. So it's not like APPs can totally replace physicians, uh, but in order to, going back to that quadruple aim, uh, we can actually provide you know, services of an APP in order to assist in accomplishing that quadruple aim. And the next, next thing is just to, you know, how do you monitor the services from a quality perspective? And I believe that you need to monitor the quality of an APP the same as you would monitor a physician. Uh, you look at outcomes, were there un unexpected results? Look at patient satisfaction. Was there also improved access to the patient population? So all of those are indicators uh, for quality. In fact, just like physicians, you can put APPs under a quality bonus program in their compensation range. We'll talk about compensation in a little bit. But there, when you monitor quality, you, you do it the exact the same way, the same process that you monitor the quality of a physician. Next, I'm going to talk about physician supervision. And here I can be probably stepping into quicksand when I raise this as an issue uh, because supervision varies greatly state by state. Uh, by way of example, with nurse practitioners, there are some states that no supervision is required. Other states require equal type of supervision, whether or not it's a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. And some states require greater supervision for a phys physician assistant as compared with a nurse practitioner. So I'm going to tell you, since I'm from the state of Tennessee, uh, my office is in Nashville, just you know what the state of Tennessee requires for the supervision of the APP uh, by, the, by the physician. Well, first off, in the state of Tennessee, uh, that there needs to be a jointly developed protocol between the supervising physician and the APP. And this protocol must be written, must be updated biannually, and must cover the standard of care that the APP is providing. It must be maintained at the APP's practice site. So if somebody wa wanted to walk in and find uh, you know, what is the protocol for the supervision of the APP in this office, uh, then that, that in writing must be uh, maintained at that practice site. It must be available to the State Department of Health if requested. Uh, also, it must spe specify the class of drugs that may be prescribed by the APP if the APP has prescription authority. And it must be specific to the population seen by the APP. So that's what the protocol, the written protocol, uh, has to involve. Now, the material aspect is the review of charts. And in, again, in the state of Tennessee, the supervising physician must review at least 20% of the charts of the APP being monitored uh, and must make at least one on-site visit to any remote site, so if the physician is not practicing at that site but is still supervising, which can be done, then the physician must be go on site 
at least once every 30 days. But obviously, if the APP is providing services in the supervising physician's office, then there's no remote visit because they're visiting every day. Uh, and there's also, there's a, so it's a 20% of charts. There's a mandatory chart review if, if there's five categories. So regardless of the 20% in the state of Tennessee, if the issue involves any of these five, then the supervising physician must review the medical record. Number one, if the APP is prescribing controlled substances, again, this is every record that any of these apply to. Number two is if the physician assistant has a temporary license and a prescription has been written. Next is when the patient requests a review. Now, most patients probably have no idea that they can request a review by the supervising physician if seen by an APP, but they can. Next is when a review is medically indicated. Now, I'm not quite sure how the supervising physician would know when it's medically indicated. I guess maybe that would have to be covered by the protocols is when the APP should be notifying the supervision or supervising physician or when the prescriptions written fall outside of the protocol. And so that would have to be some type of formalized process through the protocols to identify when a prescription is being written outside of the protocol. So again, to recap for a supervision, every state is different. Uh, usually if there's going to be a difference in review of records, there's going to be more records reviewed of PAs versus NPs. Uh, but in the state of Tennessee, as I described, it's a 20% chart review. Next, I'm going to go into billing, and this is probably the major aspect of the, of the compliance concerns, except for compensation, which I'll be talking about, is uh, first off for Medicare. And now, if, if the APP is being billed uh, to Medicare using the APP's provider number, the Medicare will pay 85% of the physician fee schedule. And so that's if you're doing the provider number. Next, we have this concept, and I'll put in air quotes, incident two. So if the APP is providing services incident to a, an ordering physician, then the services performed by the APP can be billed under that physician's provider number at 100% of the physician fee schedule. Now, there's a couple of qualifying issues, and here's where the compliance issues kick in. Uh, number one is that the doctor has to see the patient for the first visit. And the first visit means the first visit of that medical condition because the doctor needs to set the course of treatment. And once the doctor sets the course of treatment, then the treatment can be provided by the APP consistent with the physician's documented course of treatment. And number two is that the physician has to provide what Medicare refers to as direct supervision. And direct supervision doesn't mean that the physician has to be within the, uh, the, the examine, examining room. It's just the physician needs to be in the office suite when the physician, when the APP is providing services. Now, there's two other concepts under supervision. One is general, and that just means the doctor has to be on campus or generally available, or there's personal supervision, and that if, if a service falls under personal supervision, then the physician does need to be in the exam room. But as it relates to incident two billing, all it is is direct, so it must be in the office suite. Now, here's the compliance challenge. What happens if the physician goes to lunch and the APP is still seeing the patient? Or the physician is late? Or the physician leaves early? 
And usually when these are investigated where the, the, the government believes, because remember, there's a 15% differential here. Uh, so there's money for the government. What they do is they go in and look at the office logs. Can the office or practice document the physical presence of that physician during the time the APP was providing the service uh, for which the patient was being billed incident to? Now, if you start a course of treatment, let's say for Mr. Wade, uh, and the physician sets the course of treatment, and let's say that the first visit, the doctor's in the suite, you can definitely bill that incident too. And say the next visit, the doctor's on vacation and, and the nurse practitioner is, is examining me, uh, then that could actually be billed under the APP's provider number. So you don't have to be consistent. The consistency is whether or not the physician is either present and in the suite in order to provide the, the correct supervision. And next, we're going to step into this shared split visit issue. And I've had a couple of episodes on Stark Integrity talking about this. But this is when an APP and a physician sees a patient, either an inpatient or outpatient. So this is on the hospital setting. And the rules today are that whichever professional, the APP or the MDDO uh, physician, has seen the patient greater than 50.1%. That is the provider number under which that service must be billed. And so uh, I had one episode about what that rule entails. I will have another couple of episodes coming up on Stark Integrity that's going to talk about how to compensate a physician when a shared split visit occurs. So stay tuned for that one. And just quickly for Medicaid, uh, Medicaid just follow the state prescribed rules. Most of them follow the Medicare standards, but there could be some subtle nuances. So it's not my intention in Stark Integrity to dive into every single state. Or also commercial payers, it varies widely. Uh, some commercial payers actually require a modifier be placed on the claim, like modifier SA, uh, when the claim is filed instant two. But again, that's all based upon the commercial payer's contract that it has with the medical provider. Now I'm going to turn more into compensation, the Stark Law, and the anti-kickback statute. So first off, I'm going to talk about compensation for the APP. Well, first off, Stark Law does not apply. An APP is not a physician and I'll put that in air quotes again, as defined under the Stark Law. So as it relates directly to the compensation to the APP, the Stark Law does not apply, I'll just put one footnote there, unless the APP is an immediate family member of a referring physician. Uh, so if there is a spouse of a referring physician uh, who is an APP, then the Stark Law could apply to that compensation arrangement. But do you really follow the same philosophy that I've been talking about on Stark Integrity on how you evaluate compensation? So you can go back to some of my previous episodes where I talk about fair market value, the use of benchmark data, the use of uh, service area and physician-specific uh, issues in order to justify compensation. So I've got other episodes that you can dive into that. But the biggest issue I want to talk about is the compensation to the physician. Uh, as indicated, a physician is basically supervising the services of an APP. And based upon the supervision services, those supervision services are personally performed. So let me just put that over in one bucket and let me focus in a, a little bit granular issue. Then I can back out and talk a little bit more about that supervision compensation. I have an episode or two talking about the group practice definition under Stark. 
And also I have an episode that I've talked about the in-office ancillary services exception. So in order to get into the in-office ancillary services exception, then the physician must be a physician or member of the group practice and fit within that group practice definition. Again, I've got those two or three episodes to talk about that, so I'm not going to go more granular than that. But the big issue here, and it's it's stated uh, within the regulations of Stark, that the physician can receive, and get this, 100% of the incident two services performed by an APP. So reading from my Stark Bible, under the uh, special rules for productivity bonus shares, it says that a physician in the group practice may be paid a productivity bonus based upon services that he or she has personally performed, or, and this is the kicker, services, quote, incident to, end quote, such personally performed services or both. So that's the the big issue with respect to being within a group practice and availing availing yourself of the in-office ancillary services exception is because you will be able to give 100% credit for the incident to services performed by the APP to the supervising physician. Now, the biggest challenge comes when you do not meet the group practice definition and can't fit within the in-office ancillary services exception. Uh, The physician probably is a W-2 employee. And in order to fit within the uh, bona fide employment relationship exception, again, I've got an episode or two on that specifically, but if any portion of the physician's compensation is based on a productivity compensation arrangement, like compensation per work RVU, compensation per visit, etc., then they, the physician can only be compensated for personally performed services. So. If the APP is billing under their own billing number, that physician is not personally performing that service. That physician cannot get credit. If the physician is supervising the APP and the APP services are being billed incident two, then even though it's an 85% reimbursement, the physician is not personally performing that entire service. But going back to what I've uh, set the table for here with respect to supervision, the physician is personally performing supervision. So the physician can be compensated for the act of supervision. And right now, the benchmark data is saying like the average uh, for uh, supervising a 1.0 FTE APP is about fifteen dollars to $20,000 per year. And usually I see this in the form of an annual stipend. However, I've also worked with compensation models where the physician is actually receiving a portion or credit of the WRVUs being performed by the APP. However, be careful here. We are not giving credit for those work RVUs directly to the supervising physician. We are only, let's say, we're going to give 15% of the work RVU credit to the supervising physician. That 15% of the work RVU being generated by the APP is for the act of supervision. So even though it looks like that they're receiving WRVU credit, the credit is being paid to the supervising physician for the act of supervision not receiving direct credit for the personally performed services of the APP. So now it's time for the three Captain Integrity punch points. Uh, Punch point number one is that the use of APPs is for the quadruple aim, to increase quality, decrease cost, improve patient population health, and for a better work-life balance, both for the physicians as well as the APP. 
Captain Integrity punch point number two is be very careful when building incident two or shared split visit to make sure that there's sufficient documentation for the incident two. It has to be direct supervision. For the shared split visit, it's that 50.1% of time allocation between the APP and the physician. And Captain Integrity punch point number three, be very careful about the credit given to any physician for the WRVUs performed by the APP. Again, if you fit within the group practice definition or the in-office ancillary services exception, you can possibly give direct credit, 100%. If you're under the employment exception, it's only a portion of the services or compensation uh, that can be paid to the physician for the act of supervision. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.